I'm ABC's Aaron Katursky, and this is Bringing America Back, What You Need to Know. The first death from coronavirus in the United States occurred in February. The 100,000th came before the end of May. Coronavirus killed fast. The sobering death toll in the United States far surpasses that of other highly infected countries and generates a starkly different reaction. In some places, it seems nearly business as usual, where reopenings parallel a growth in coronavirus cases. There are pockets of new infections in Florida, Virginia, Nebraska, and Louisiana, while New York City, hardest hit in the nation three months later, is still largely shut down. And 100,000 people died despite restrictions that put 40 million Americans out of work. Another 2.1 million filed new claims for unemployment benefits last week. Megan Green is an economist at Harvard's Kennedy School. How should we read today's numbers? Sure. So traders, um, I think, view today's uh, jobless claims data as pretty positive. And it's, it's being held up as kind of one of the first indications that we've hit the bottom and are, you know, have gotten to the other side of this crisis. Um, and I guess I would just say we still had over 2 million people um, file for unemployment, which is, you know, if you look at the history of jobless claims, that's still off the charts. It's only relative to the past few weeks that that's considered better. And then the, the continuing claims number actually fell. And so a lot of people feel like that's a great sign, but there are a bunch of weird anomalies in there. Um, it's worth considering that gig workers aren't usually eligible for benefits, but a new program was created for them under the last fiscal stimulus program for them to get some benefits. And if you add them in, actually, uh, you end up with over 3 million people who had initial claims filed last week. So that's one thing to consider because technically they're unemployed too. We just don't count them in the headline figures. The consensus among economists seems to be this is going to be a really long drawn out time of economic pain and that a lot of these jobs are not going to come back. Yeah, I think that, you know, some industries just aren't going to look like what they used to look like before this crisis. So retail is a great example. Analysts have been calling for the death of retail for the past decade and it hasn't happened yet. But I do think it might happen now in terms of bricks and mortar retail. And we're already seeing a bunch of companies file for bankruptcy. A lot is being moved online. So that's just one example. But there are a lot of others. And, and some companies that were healthy beforehand, you know, might just never make it through this. And so the average small business um, has about 15 days cash buffer. Are they still really open? A lot of them have shuttered and, and aren't going to be able to open again. So. If we are going to have these huge dislocations, it is good that people at least now can get unemployment insurance while they figure out how to retool and reskill for another industry. It's just our retooling and reskilling programs aren't great. And so that's something that we could certainly improve. But the hope is that we're, we've found the bottom. And if this is what the bottom looks like, um, it's still pretty awful. Because any way you look at it, the pandemic has decimated the economy. That's right. It's decimated the economy. It's decimated the labor force. Um, it's killed off activity. And we'll get that back eventually, but it's going to take a really long time. Um, you know, these jobs, if, if they ever come back, they're not coming back for years. And it's much easier to get back the first 20% of workers who lost their jobs and found new ones than it is to get back the last 20%. So the improvement will come quickly initially, but then it's going to be a long slog to get back to where we were before this crisis hit. Megan Green from Harvard's Kennedy School of Government. 
We can tell you about one Ohio retailer that has managed to figure out how to open back up. I'm Amy Puckowitz Bradford, and I own Amy's Shoes and Apparel. I opened my first store in 2007. I have a love for shoes and felt like there was a gap in the market and always wanted to be entrepreneurial. The whole main concept is for everybody to leave feeling comfortable and confident. We also try to do things that are very fashionable yet functional. We, prior to the pandemic, had a lot of events. Our whole concept was the in-person customer experience. We wanted the people inside. We wanted them to touch and feel the clothes. Business really almost halted prior to us closing. People were definitely staying in. When the pandemic hit, it was really difficult because we went from a really strong spring selling season to nothing. People were home, they were scared, there's a lot of uncertainty, and so discretionary spending on footwear and apparel wasn't really on the forefront of people's minds, especially if you're not going anywhere. I needed to quickly adapt and pivot my business model to ramp up my online and sales and my website. It was scary on our end too because we didn't know when we would be allowed to reopen and what that was gonna look like. While we were closed, some of our vendors started producing masks and made them available to us. I immediately got on their list to bring in masks as product. We also wanted to help support the healthcare community because there seemed to be a limit of availability for masks for them too. So each mask, for every mask that a customer purchased, we donated one to one of our local hospitals. When the governor gave us the green light to open, I was very excited, but also very anxious. I wanted to take what the state had recommended and then let's go above and beyond and make this the safest environment possible. Having open communication with everybody, the staff, the customers, we have to do everything possible and under our control to make this environment safe and to get the word out to the customers that we are being responsible and doing everything we can under my roof to make sure that they're as safe as possible. That is the goal. Amy Bradford of Amy's Shoes and Apparel in Ohio. There is new information about the effect of coronavirus on cancer patients. Dr. Angela Baldwin from the ABC News Medical Unit is here with us with more So cancer patients diagnosed with coronavirus, 13% die within 30 days? That's correct. This recent study out of The Lancet did show that people who are sickened with COVID-19 who also have cancer have a death rate of about 13%, which is pretty significant. And that's 13% within 30 days of being diagnosed with COVID-19. Is it that the cancer itself is complicating what's going on with coronavirus That's a very good question. There's actually a lot of factors involved here. So it could be that their immune system is already in a weakened state because of the cancer itself, but it also could be due to the medication that they're taking, um, the anti-cancer medication, and also oftentimes they take supportive medications such as steroids, which also suppress the immune system. The medicine that helps them treat cancer is making coronavirus worse? Right, because it's weakening their immune system, so their body can't fight off the infection as well as you or I would. And then unfortunately, when you add on top of that, the fact that a lot of cancer patients frequently are older and have other underlying health conditions, that just puts them at increased risk for more severe COVID-19 symptoms and or death. So bottom line, cancer 
and coronavirus increases the risk of mortality. There is a fighting chance, and, and it's better than a coin toss, but yes, there is a high rate of mortality associated with getting COVID-19 if you already have cancer. And it's interesting that they also found some other factors that were associated with this increased risk of death in these cancer patients. So people who were older age, as I mentioned before, but also male sex, uh, a previous smoking history, having at least two underlying health conditions such as diabetes or, or heart failure, and then also active cancer treatment. Because in the study, they also did look at people who had previous cancer diagnosis but were in remission. But it turns out that active cancer is also a variable that increases the risk of death. Did it matter at all if patients were in remission? Um, actually, it did seem to show that people who, who were active had an increased risk of death, but those who were in remission did not seem to have quite the same amount of risk. So that is a positive. What other factors came into play? So there were a few things that they found did not have an increased, um, or increased association with mortality, and that was uh, race and ethnicity, obesity status, the type of cancer, and the type of cancer therapy they were on. So those factors didn't correlate with an increased risk of dying from COVID-19. Doesn't matter what type of cancer it is, there's still that same 13% mortality rate. Exactly. Does that tell us anything? Does that suggest that it may be in the medications that the patient is taking rather than the cancer itself? Absolutely. And that's something that they would need to do more experiments on, more focused study to kind of bear that out. But it does look like since the type of cancer didn't really matter, that maybe there is uh, the actual medication or the supportive medications that are causing these issues. Dr. Angela Baldwin, part of the ABC News medical team. I'm Aaron Katursky. Now over to Amy Robach. Thank you, Aaron. Joining me now is ABC News chief medical correspondent, Dr. Jen Ashton. And Dr. Jen, obviously so much attention on wearing masks, including those who choose not to wear yep. one. There is a new study out now that shed some light on the issue. So what do we know about masks right now? Well, we're going to be learning a lot more, but let's look back first for some historical perspective. First of all, masks from the 1890s right around the 1900s were really used to prevent the spread of infection, just like they're being used now. But around 1918, when we had the, the big pandemic, that's when they first started to be used to protect the person wearing them. Mm -hmm. Now, we have to remember that this is part of PPE. So surgical masks and 95s, they are still in high demand for health care professionals and first responders. And the efficacy really depends on the fit and the fabric. So, you know, even though they're they're all a little bit different, those are the two most important factors. And we have to remember that they do not replace the behaviors like social distancing and hand hygiene. Very important to remember. And yeah, you see all kinds of masks, makeshift yeah. masks to N95s on the street. There is a new study out uh, from the UK about yep. masks how they work. What are the theories? This really caught my attention. It hasn't been peer-reviewed yet, but this study from the NHS in the UK looked at all different types of face coverings, different fabrics, and they found that in general, they decrease this forward momentum of particles by at least 90% or more. They also found that those full-face shields that you see that look like the clear right. welders kind of shields, they do allow for a strong downward jet. That's just basic physics. If the air can't go out, it's going to go down. And they looked at handmade masks and found that while it was good at blocking forward momentum of these particles, that they do produce jets that can leak out 
the side yeah. and the back. So interesting oh, wow. in terms of where you might be standing around someone who's wearing one Yeah, of you those. might feel very safe behind them, but maybe you aren't. Exactly. Okay. And so what do we still need to learn about masks? A lot. Um, and we need to remember that when you look at something in a lab setting versus real life, you're going to get different results. But there, we don't know yet their efficacy at preventing the spread of COVID-19. We don't know how effective they are at protecting the person wearing the mask. Because remember, this is really for the protection of others. And we really don't know Will this practice become permanent in the U.S. like it is in many Asian countries? Is this a trend that's here to stay? We just don't know yet. That's all to be determined. All right. We will check back in with you a little bit later. Well, over Memorial Day weekend, we saw images of people completely ignoring social distancing measures. And many wonder what changes will be instituted for this coming weekend. So joining us now is St. Louis, Missouri County Executive Dr. Sam Page. And Dr. Page, I'll just begin with asking you what your reaction was. Well, what we saw here was an international example of bad behavior, but it's completely inconsistent with our experience here in St. Louis County. But we do know that Lake the Ozarks is a, pop, a popular weekend destination for St. Louis County residents, and we thought it was important to issue a travel warning to let them know what the right thing to do was when they return home. That's right. You've advised residents in your county who may have traveled to the Ozarks over the Memorial Day weekend to self Quarantine. We heard from Governor Parsons. He said it's up to local officials to enforce state guidelines. How confident are you that those individuals will actually follow your recommendations? Well, this is a travel advisory, and the role of public health and the role of local government is to let people know what the right thing is to do. And when we've given that direction in St. Louis County, we've seen the vast majority of county re- residents follow that direction. They want to know what the right thing to do is. And they follow those guide, that guidance, the business guidance, the public health orders when we ask them to do that. Certainly the individuals involved in this uh, lack of judgment and this uh, you know, loss of understanding of social distancing are, are certainly unique. But we want them to know what the right thing to do is when they come home to protect their loved ones in our community from the spread of COVID-19. We know that 20 and perhaps 50 percent of patients who have covid are able to spread it or either asymptomatic or pre-symptomatic. And we have to understand that these social distancing rules and, and guidelines are here for a reason. And we're working hard to get that message out and to keep people doing the right thing. That's right. And I know the goal in your county is to be able to test a thousand people per day. Have you been able to meet that goal yet? Well, we're testing well over 500 and we're working to understand all of the testing that's going on through private labs, through public health, uh, through federally qualified health centers and our hospital systems to collect and coordinate that information and publish it on a dashboard. Uh, we want to get to 1,000 tests a day. We think we're well on our way. We're purchasing more tests and increasing our testing footprint every day. That testing and contact tracing really is the, the backbone of our public health response. And we should point out, you're not just St. Louis County Executive. You're also a medical doctor. So how has that impacted your decision-making during this public health crisis? Well, it certainly gives me a deeper understanding of the vocabulary and the science and, and the understanding behind uh, all these public health decisions. And it allows me to communicate with our hospital systems and our public health officials at a much higher level. But we've got a good working relationship. We're very proud of our response here in St. Louis County. We believe we're doing the right thing moving forward. And um, I'm really thankful at what I've seen uh, in our county residents. They're making the right decisions. And if we continue on this path, We'll continue to make progress in the right direction. Yeah, and speaking of progress, Dr. Page, as businesses are now reopening or starting to reopen, the economic impact on families in your county does continue. How are you helping them with just the basics, like food and essentials? So we've implemented our county CARES response. 
um, with the federal stimulus grant. We've divided it into uh, three crises, our public health crisis, our humanitarian crisis, and our economic crisis. Um, we've initiated uh, uh, food programs, food giveaways. We're working on rental assistance. Our public health response has been robust, purchasing, testing, supplies, uh, uh, hiring uh, uh, many contact tracers. We've hired well over 100, and we're on our way to our goal there. And then we've also implemented some small business grants in St. Louis County, and we're in the process of receiving those applications. They're open for a couple more days, and then we'll start reviewing them and try and help keep our small businesses connected to their customer base and to their employees. We certainly wish you the very best in all of your efforts. Dr. Sam Page, thank you for your time today. Thank you. Ohio is one of many states that has begun its phased approach to reopening back up their economy after being impacted by the coronavirus. The state has over 31,000 confirmed COVID-19 cases so far. Here with us to tell us more on how Ohio plans to lower those numbers and get back to work safely is Lieutenant Governor John Husted. Lieutenant Governor, thanks for being with us. And I know the virus has claimed the lives of more than 1,800 people in your state. So as you now continue to reopen, how do you get back to business safely? Well, we do it by making sure that everybody is following the proper protocols, and we know what those are. It's the distancing, it's uh, disinfecting, it's wearing masks where appropriate, uh, and, and asking people to take the personal and collective responsibility that it's going to take for us to do this together. Uh, we know that we have to open up aspects of the economy. By the end of the month, we'll be about 95% of the private economy will be open but we want to emphasize that as we're restoring those opportunities, uh, that it's contingent. It's contingent upon people doing the right things, respecting each other and following the proper protocols so we don't see a resurgence of spread. Right. And I know that's the goal for every state and every state has different ways in which they're reopening. So walk us through what Ohio is doing, which businesses have opened back up, which businesses remain closed. Well, uh, almost everything, you know, manufacturing, distribution, office, all of that opened up on May the 4th, retail on the 12th, uh, restaurants and personal care uh, on the 15th, uh, and, and we're opening up daycares now because we know people have to have places to take their children as they're going back to work. Uh, all of these kinds of things are open. What's not open are large venues like amusement parks, concerts, theaters, sports stadiums where you have... Uh, hundreds, if not thousands of people gathering together. Uh, but we're looking at those to see where we end up uh, later in the summer with some of those kinds of activities. So that's what's open. But everything has a protocol attached to it about how we have to keep that spacing. Look, we know this works. We know we've seen the numbers. We, we went from a 2.4 person spread for every one person who had the virus now to a one to one person spread even with opening all of these things up. And we just have to maintain that so that we can uh, not see a resurgence because what we don't want to do is we don't want to go backwards. And the success of this strategy, because look, there's uncertainty around it. We recognize that. But people also want to have hope. They want to have hope that, that their lives are going to be able to resume at least in some way as they remembered them. And to the key to that is doing the reopening, doing, this, doing the interaction with one another in a right way that respects the fact that this virus is still out there and is still a threat in our lives. Yeah, no, hope is so important. And I know that Ohio has been the scene for many protests against those stay-at-home orders initially and then even the reopening plan itself. What is your message for them? 
Look, we've always said in, as we've gone through this, we're, we are all in this together. Literally, everybody's individual behavior has a collective outcome in terms of spreading the virus or not spreading the virus. Uh, if, you, if you don't want to see restrictions in place, then please, uh, you know, respect social distancing, wear a mask if it's feasible for you so that, so that we slow the, the potential for spread. We, ha- we are all connected in this, and we have to, to help each other, respect one another, and understand that, yes, we know young people are not as susceptible to mortality as older folks, but young people can spread it. So uh, we need to make sure that we're looking out for each other. All right. Well, certainly important information for everyone to remember. Lieutenant Governor John Husted, thank you so much for your time today. We certainly appreciate it. Thank you. All right. When we come back, so many of us dealing with the daily roller coaster of the ups and downs of this pandemic as it drags on. May is Mental Health Awareness Month. Strategies for coping. Next. Well, it's time now to take a good look at a lot of your medical questions that have been pouring in for our Dr. Jen Ashton. So Dr. Jen joining us now, and we'll get straight to the first question. If people go away for the weekend, should they self-quarantine when they return? Well, this is an interesting question. There's no formal official, let's say, CDC guidelines on this region by region anymore, really, or state by state. But we heard, you know, St. Louis, for example, they are recommending that people do some kind of self-monitoring depending on where they went. It really comes down to, again, where you've been, who you were with, what you were doing, and for how long. And again, it's that cautious behavior on the part of protecting others that really is a question. Right. All right. Next question. Are there any other viruses that you could test positive for when there are no symptoms? Oh, my gosh. Lots. And let's just take the ones that start with H. So HIV, hepatitis, all types of hepatitis, um, herpes, HPV, almost every infection has that stage between latency when you're exposed, if you're pre-symptomatic, if you're asymptomatic, and when it can be detected. So this is definitely not unique to COVID-19. Wow, I think a lot of people think this is the first time something like this has happened, but it's not going on as long as we've seen viruses. That's right. All right. As we start to use AC more often, should filters be changed more frequently to avoid potential COVID-contaminated air? No one knows. And this is a really important question because, again, this is an example of the theoretical risk and then uh, something that can be seen in a lab setting, something can be seen in real life. There is data out of China where COVID-19 particles were detected on the air conditioning ducts in hospitals that had treated severely ill patients with COVID-19. And we've seen it also spread by restaurant airflow. Um, Apartment buildings sometimes have shared ducts. So in theory, it is absolutely possible. But then you go to, well, okay, then how often should you be changing these filters? No one knows that. They haven't done that study yet. All right, but definitely concerning. Sure. All right, next question. What exactly makes religious services potential sites for super spreading of the virus? Well, I heard it phrased perfectly by an epidemiologist from Ohio State University who said it comes down to four elements. And this is really what I want people to remember. Space, time, people, and place. So when you talk about indoor religious gatherings, you have all of those things. You have prolonged time. You have a lot of people. You have space, very little space in between them. Um, And we know that those are all factors. So again, if you could move that outside, Mm. absolutely, that would be better. And then we know that with singing that occurs in a lot of places of worship, you're more forcefully emitting not just spittle, but potentially viral particles. So space, time, people, place. Remember those four things. All right. We will, Dr. Jen. Thank you very much. And you can submit questions to Dr. Jen 
on her Instagram at Dr. J. Ashton. Well, May is Mental Health Awareness Month, and this year it may be more important than ever to recognize its value. Joining me now to weigh in on this topic is motivational speaker and author Bershawn Shaw. Bershawn, thanks so much for talking with us today. And I know in a world operating with school closures and stay-at-home orders and social distancing, talk about the effects those changes have for sure on people's state of mental health. Hello, yes. This quarantine has really gotten to people. I mean, social distancing, people are becoming very depressed. They're becoming sad. They're becoming angry. It really does affect you because as human beings, we like to connect with people. We like to hug and kiss and say hello. So it's causing a really big effect. That's right. And people are literally, not just figuratively, isolated right now. So what are your top three tips on helping people get that stronger mental health and to get something into their daily life and routine that will make them feel better? Yes. And this is what I love doing. Number one, um, join a support group or talk to friends. Join some place where you can be involved with people. That's why I have You Are a Warrior, right? My <laughs> app. And then next, I love exercising. Exercising every day to get your endorphins up. I don't care if you walk around your neighborhood, walk up the steps, do some type of exercising to get things out of your mind. And then I really love dancing. Put on your favorite music and just dance. I mean, sometimes you got to look crazy, but dance on your own just so you can feel good and get out of this rut. Because we're all going. I agree. I try to have at least one dance party a week and it takes all my worries away. Now, you mentioned your app. You, uh, If people want to take things a step further, you have this new app that helps people who are looking for support in their mental health journey. So what makes your platform different from those that are already out there? Yeah, you know, my platform is a safe space. We don't have to be like someone else. You know, a lot of these platforms, you have to dress up. You can't make a mistake. You have to look beautiful. We want a place where you can be you. No need to be validated by anyone. If you're depressed, come on and share your story. If you're feeling anxious, stressed, you're feeling lonely. I mean, look at the unemployment rate today. It's the highest in so long. So you can talk about that. Other places, you have to make it seem like you're okay and make it seem like like you don't have any problems when you have problems. That's what we're about, to share your story. Because I have problems, we all have problems. I was just going to ask you that, Prashant, because you are just radiating positivity. But clearly you chose this uh, in terms of becoming a motivational speaker and helping people who have mental health needs. What brought you to this line of work? You know, I'm a stage four breast cancer survivor. I was given three months to live, three months. And that really, it it plays on your mind and your psyche. But I'm here, thank God, 12 years later. So I wanted to do this to give back because I know people are suffering in silence. I coach them. I coach leaders and business um, owners and CEOs and middle management and entrepreneurs. We're suffering in silence. We need a place where we can share and talk about what we're going through and not make it seem like we're living this happy day every single day. We need a place. I know I needed a place when I was going through cancer. So I know other people need a place. Believe me, they do. They tell me. Oh, thank you for sharing that, too, by the way. I got chills from head to toe hearing you say that because I have to say I've never met a happier group of people than people who have faced death or have felt that fear because they realize how important it is to live. And so as we close out this month of May, this week, 
hoping you can leave us with a message of hope and motivation for those who are watching and may need to hear what you have to say. I have to tell them to this too shall pass, keep going. I'm telling you, I'm giving perks on my website, um, youarearrior.com, the letter youarearrior.com, 5,000 perks, I mean, of great things, motivational bracelets, motivational books, things that can help you get through this. We have to keep going because this too shall pass. My biggest thing, never, ever give up. I love that. And you know what? From this breast cancer survivor to you, I knew we were sisters. Brashawn Shaw, thank you for being with us today. We appreciate it. Thank you so much. I'm glad to be here. Showing kindness, even during a pandemic, exists. Our next guest lost many people close to her due to COVID-19, but she did not let that stop her. Instead of turning to depression, she focused her energy on helping others. And here to talk about the amazing community she has created, please welcome Shana Jones. Shana, thank you so much for being with us. And we are so sorry, not just for your loss, but but for your losses. Tell us how you first realized you wanted to help others through this grief. I tell you, Amy, it's been rough. I tell you, by the grace of God, that I'm still here and I'm still helping each um, people in my neighborhood. Um, I woke up. I was numb. I was feeling, you know, helpless. But I have three sons and my 14-year-old school called and they said they could not do lunches for the week because two of the workers had tested positive. So I was like, I got to do something. I'm always out helping the community. I'm always out on the grounds, and I knew I had to do something. And, you know, I set out table just with apples and oranges and some sack lunches. And his friends was like, hey, we hungry. And they they came to the house, and, you know, all the 200 sack lunches left within two hours. Wow. And I was like, oh, you know, I was like, okay, okay. So they, it was a week long, and we did this for a whole week. And I called my big brother, Mike, down in Georgia. I said, hey, I'm, I'm channeling my energy. I, I need your help. Can you send me some money? Because I need to buy some more food because people are hungry in the neighborhood. The school can't do the lunches right now. And that's important because most of these kids, you know, they depend on the school for the lunches. And so I did it for a whole week. The second week, I said, okay, school back up. Let me just put some canned goods and stuff. Because one of the little boys, he used to always come and say, can he get tuna? Because he couldn't eat the meat and stuff. And so I picked canned goods and cleared out my cabinet and the table went empty again. Wow. I said, wow. And so I started looking at my camera. And I started seeing families, different people. Because at first I thought somebody was taking the whole table, but it was multiple families mm. coming to the table grabbing items. They weren't being greedy. They would just grab one canned good, one box of cereal. And I said, wow. I said, God, if you give me the strength, even while I'm broken right now, let me help somebody else. Because I'm torn. At this point, I had lost five people. I started my first table on April the 3rd. And I said, just give me the strength. You know, let me go back to what my grandma and everybody taught me. Give me the strength to help these people because people are in need right now. Yeah. And that's how the table got started. Well, thank goodness for you, Shana. And as you mentioned, you started with items in your own pantry. And then it grew from there, which is pretty remarkable. You started to get donations. And I want to know how other people can help you help the people of your community. How can people donate? Well, I have a um, GoFund account. I have Vimo account. I got a Cash App account. If you're local in St. Louis, you know, they could 
Catch me on Facebook. Send me a message because I wake up every day. My community, Maplewood community, people have driven 45 minutes away to just bring me food for this table because it's such a need right now. Unemployment is everybody's getting laid off. People need food. They that I I tell people I stay right here at a stop sign. And I think people make a choice at the stop sign. Pay a bill or eat today. Mm. And they see my table out there, they say free. Get get what you help yourself. And they know they could eat and pay a bill. So, you know, if you want to donate, check out my um, GoFund account, Grab and Go Table, uh, Facebook, Vimo, Cash App, because we're feeding 50 families a day. The table is set up nine hours a day, seven days a week. And I'm going to continue. I got to, because this is what I'm purpose. This I'm working in my purpose. And I got to help people. I'm broken. But if, if I'm broken and somebody is broken coming to my table, it's like broken pieces are coming together to make one whole piece yeah. to make the community better. And that's what I want to do. A beautiful mosaic, indeed. Uh, I, I am just so in awe of you and what you're doing for your community. And I know you're going to inspire so many people. And I hope the donations roll in for you, Shana Jones. Thank you so much for all that you do. We certainly appreciate you and all of your efforts. Thank you. Thank you, Amy, for taking time out just to visit me down here in Missouri. Thank you so much. It was our pleasure. We wish you the very best. You too. We're going to turn now to Dr. Jen Ashton for her final thoughts. That's some spirit, right? Today, Amy, I'm really thinking about um, our ability to think in terms of extremes. I've found myself doing this so many times, thinking of what I am doing or what I'm not doing. And I think if we focus on what we are doing, sometimes that's a negative, sometimes it's a positive. Maybe we're saying we're eating too much, we're drinking too much, we're sitting too much. But then we can think of what we're also doing. We're, we are also maybe spending more time with family. We are also having more time to catch up on lost sleep or to organize things. So it's all about perspective and not only focusing on what we've lost, but maybe what we've gained as well. That's true. My house has never been cleaner. <laughs> That's right. <laughs> or more full. <laughs> or more full. That's true. And those are two good things. All right, Dr. Jen, thank you so much. The pandemic has brought a wave of uncertainty into all of our lives, but that is especially true for anyone in the process of moving or refinancing their homes. And fortunately, here to answer some of the essential questions involving mortgages, rent, and the housing market right now is CEO of United Wholesale Mortgage, Matt Ishiba. Thank you so much for being with us. And Matt, I know so many people, and you know this too, are seeking that temporary relief from their home mortgages. What advice can you give them? Yeah, you know, obviously the pandemic's out there. People have had job loss, and a lot of situations have happened to people. And so, you know, forbearance is an option out there, and people are talking to their mortgage servicers about it. And the the thing is, we're all in this together. So servicers like ourselves and other great uh, lenders out there are here to help. So call your servicer, talk to them about it. And maybe it's the right option for you, maybe it's not. Maybe there are other options that will help you out. But we're here for everybody. Everyone's trying to solve this together as we're all going through this together as Americans. Yeah, a lot of people weighing their options. So help us determine if it makes more sense for someone to rent or to purchase a home right now. Is there a general answer? It's it's a difficult one that a lot of people are trying to figure out. Yeah, well, right now, obviously, with job loss across the country, if you have a stable job, you feel good about where you're at, right now is a great time to buy. I mean, mortgage interest rates have never been lower. 30-year fixed rates in the twos. You know, it's never been seen before. And so it's a great opportunity. Affordability is in a great position, too, because housing prices are good and rates are low. So you can actually maybe buy a little more house for the same price or buy that exactly that dream house for a little less payment. So it's a really great time if you can and you feel good about your financial situation and what's going on in the economy in your area. Yeah, that makes 
makes sense. And I know a lot of people are now considering refinancing their home mortgages right now because of those interest rates. What advice would you give them? Well, right now, you know, with rates being so low, it's so important to shop. You know, find a mortgagebroker.com. You can find a local mortgage broker that can shop between lenders like myself and other great lenders because rates are so different at every lender. If you're not getting a 30-year fixed rate in the twos, you're probably not getting the right deal because there's so much of that out there right now with rates being so low because of what the Fed did and all tied to this pandemic. So that's one of the silver linings of what's happening is rates are really low. You can save money on a refinance or, like I said, buy a house a little cheaper than you would have bought maybe four or five months ago. Yeah, that's definitely a silver lining and all of this economic news that we've been getting. And I know a lot of people are confined to their homes, whether they're of a certain age or have a compromised immune system. They really don't want to physically leave their home. So are there steps being taken right now in the mortgage business so homeowners can close title or refinance their mortgages without having to physically leave their homes? Absolutely. So literally, you can do it all digitally, working with a mortgage broker, basically figuring out how to you e-sign, electronically sign everything. You can you can send your docs securely uh, via portals. And so really, you don't have to leave your home to do a refinance or buy a home. Obviously, uh, to buy a home, you probably want to walk through it or look through it. But people are even doing that virtually right now. So it's available. Even the closing process can be done virtually. It can be done right now. It's being done every single day. Even appraisers don't have to come into the house with some of the great rules that Fannie Mae and Freddie Mac came out with, trying to make this easier during these these times in America. So everyone in the mortgage industry is trying to help help people take advantage of these low rates, take advantage of uh, this opportunity out there for everyone while this uh, pandemic is still going on out there and while rates are low. Yeah, such good information for everyone out there. Thank you so much, Matt Ishbia. We certainly appreciate your time today. Thanks for having me. And that's our program for today. I'm Amy Robach. Thanks for listening. Hey, I'm Andy Mitchell, a New York Times bestselling author. And I'm Sabrina Kohlberg, a morning television producer. We're moms of toddlers and best friends of 20 years. And we both love to talk about being parents, yes, but also pop culture. So we're combining our two interests by talking to celebrities, writers, and fellow scholars of TV and movies. Cinema, really. About what we all can learn from the fictional moms we love to watch. From ABC Audio and Good Morning America, Pop Culture Moms is out now wherever you listen to podcasts.